I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy 50s! Thank you. Look at us, just a couple of middle-aged white guys in their 50s doing a podcast. Exactly. How (laughs) unusual is that? So, how was the birthday? It was fantastic. Any highlights you'd like to share? Karaoke? Always a highlight for me. Wow. Did a storming rendition of Simon Smith and his Dancing Bear. You and Sarah? And uh, uh, two other couples. Oh, not me, by the way, just in case anyone... No, no, no. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's out of... One of my resolutions on turning 50 is to stop inviting you to things out of self-respect because it's, it's like a dagger in the heart every time you decline. <laughs> I rarely decline. You always decline. I don't think You're a true. known decliner. I don't think I'm a decliner. Anyway, let's, get, let's not get this off the rails here. Uh, I got um, the podcast team arranged the most incredible birthday cake. Yes. With a photo. Of the two of us? Yeah. And I couldn't bring myself to eat your face. <laughs> so what's happened to it? Somebody else ate Gene it. Gene ate it, yeah. Oh, right. okay. he, he specifically asked if you could eat your face, well, actually. That's good. Uh, but I, I ate my own face. And you know, your birthday didn't pass without comment. Oh, you're going to read something from the Times of London? Uh, Not quite. A number of very nice social media posts. Uh, And I thought I would um, let you know some of the highlights. Jay Foreman via Twitter, many happy returns. The most I've ever laughed in my car was because of Jeff, the man who looks like a thumb from the Mummy and My Ugly feature from 2002. Jay is uh, a very funny comedian. Daisy Plum 75, happy birthday, Jeff, and thank you for having your birthday today so that my daughter, 21, today can share it with you and not just Hitler. I'm eternally grateful for that. There's also Luther Vandross and Leslie Phillips. Sazamash via Instagram, I love the felt tip posters. He obviously drew himself to promote his radio show on Hospital Radio in Mackles feel back in the day fair play jeff they did you proud happy 50th young jeff chuff for you and your love of the hot brick oh i love the hot brick when i used to walk to school in the mornings yeah macclesfield bit rainy rainy and gray and halfway there was this one brick that i could put my hands on uh, rita at home via instagram jeff curiosity heart heart joel corner via twitter joel being the milliverse, the milliverse. uh is it still going the milliverse 
I think so. Well, but I think it's a parallel universe. It doesn't start. Right, okay. Fine. Unless just, something terrible just happened. Checking. Jeff has similar social levels of social anxiety to me, and I always find his discussion of his various attempts to maneuver through them very helpful and relatable. Lily via Twitter, his persistence about the leisure center story. I have to say, That's Lily. your persistence. I think I'm being more persistent. And Joanne Mead via Facebook. Whenever I hear Jeff, I'm transported back to the drive school with my son 20 plus years ago. We would listen to Jeff's show with Pete Mitchell on Virgin Radio, singing along to Yoshimi Battles, the Pink Robots, Aww. and Big Sir, and laughing at their mummy and my ugly slot. He's made me cheerful ever since. Happy birthday, Jeff. That's so lovely. Thank you to everybody. Aww. Now we have news. Go on. We are going to be taking to the stage for the first time in almost a year, I think. In the home of the bard. Yes. This this is quite something. I know. The actual Royal Shakespeare Company. I know. I've invited us. Now, what they haven't invited us to do is appear in one of their productions. Sorry, I only agreed to it. I thought we were doing a sort of cameo in Hamlet. Oh, I see you as a Richard Third. Mm, oh, gosh, let's not get into that. Uh, <laughs> I'm more of a bottom. Something. So. So. Saturday, the 3rd of June. Not quite a Midsummer Night's Dream, but it's getting that way. It is. And I'm, I'm excited. The last time we did a live show was at King's Place in London. It was as Boris Johnson oh, had yes. just imploded, exploded, yes. maybe imploded. And we had yes. such a great time. Yes. But you're a busy boy these days. Yes. Don't get to do as many as we used to. Oh, no. Well, anyway, so this is a sort of rarity. It is a rarity. Collector's item. Yeah. So it might be your only chance this year if the past 12 months are anything yes. to go by. And you get to go to Stratford. Unless you're already there. Do you, do you need to give the full details, though? You just Saturday the 3rd of June. I mean, that could, that's like covers 24 hours. I mean, <laughs> maybe like t- the time, people might have other things on, you know. I think it's 2 p.m. on Saturday the 3rd of June. It's live at the RSC Festival and uh, it's the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford. And be there or be somewhere else. But don't be somewhere else. Be but there. Don't be somewhere else. I mean, if you've got a wedding or something that day, we understand. We're going to have fun frolics. Food for thought. Yeah, I'm not sure about the frolics, but we can we can work really? on some. I don't know. Is it dignified to me for yeah. me to be frolicking at the age of fifty? I think it's quite twelfth nightish, isn't it? Frolicking. Oh yes, yes. And we'll put a link. Actually, we'll put a yeah. link on social media. Yeah. And we'll put a link in the podcast notes. Uh, the RSC tweeted it out and linked me into the tweet. It said, uh, "Live at the RSC, new event just added." Cheerful podcast will be here on Saturday, the 3rd of June, to spark some compelling conversations with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I thought I want to look at the en- engagement on that. This is maybe an hour or two after they posted it. One like, one reply. <laughs> and the reply said, sounds awful. Dear. It's proven wrong. Yes. I'm not sure that's a pretty good way to tell it to people. <laughs> well, a man on Twitter with loads of numbers in his username said, oh, sounds, there's, 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 there's a, a type. Bot. There's a type, isn't there's a there? Bot. Yeah. And now should we talk about what we're talking about this week? We should. It's our way to tome. A book came across our desk that we were so intrigued by. We thought, let's have a long conversation with the author. Uh, the author is Daniel Chandler. He is an economist and philosopher. Uh, it is his very first book. It's called Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? And it's inspired by the work of 20th century philosopher John Rawls. No relation to Lou Rawls. No, John Rawls. He's like... It's quite. I've written an obituary of John Rawls, I believe, in the New Statesman, because I think I was at Harvard when he died. I was thinking about this on the way here. You know, in the field of political philosophy, he's had a massive, massive impact. His book, A Theory of Justice, which was published in the early 1970s, I think, is the kind of seminal work around which so much other debate has revolved. But he's sort of very absent from any political debate. And it's almost, and Daniel talks about this in the book, it's almost like his kind of domination of political philosophy coincided with the sort of Thatcher-Reagan era and the sort of 
decline of kind of what you might call liberal, loosely called liberalism. And Daniel's book is a really interesting account. I think it's a sort of it's a game of two halves, Jeff. Uh, it's a sort of account of rules and what he's about, and then an account of what rules would mean for society. Mm. So it's a really interesting. I'm really keen to talk to him. Rules is going mainstream. He's crossing over. He is. The rules ideas are rather brilliant. So it is exciting to talk about them. And I sort of got transported back to my political philosophy at university when I was reading Daniel's book. What's your reason to be cheerful? On Sunday, I cycled 18 kilometres, although on my electric bike, but with the speed mostly at one. Then I did half an hour in the ponds and then I ran 5k. I want to ask you, how close am I to a triathlon? Does that make me close? My wife thought I was insane and i did say at the end i'm very tired and she said well i'm not surprised uh i mean it's not quite a triathlon is it no but i i think i think you should just attempt a triathlon with no further training <laughs> that'll be amusing for you yeah it'd be like when the late jade goody tried to run the marathon with no training yeah but but anyway what is what does a triathlon involve why are you asking me triathlon? because you're old and wise old wise and sedentary um what is a triathlon? British triathlon. Okay, so here we go. Triathlon is a multidiscipline sport consisting of swimming, cycling and running. It's a great sport to keep active. The swim will take place in a swimming pool or open water. Swim in water. Bike, compulsory uh, for all races. Run, shoes is important. The transition is often called the fourth discipline. Is there anything else you can sort of vaguely read off your phone? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. Are you still there? Uh, anyway, there you go. Wow. Well, congratulations. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is Pod Save the UK. Yes, I've heard about this. Why does that make you cheerful? I mean, I think, why didn't they turn to us? Well, we, we already exist. They could have sort of, you know. Acquired us. Or something, yeah. A merger and acqui- um, yeah. A monopoly and merger. M&A, yeah. They might have referred it to the Monopolies and Mergers well, Commission. true. I actually. think that was it. There'd be too many true, regulatory that's issues. True, that's true. It's now called the CMA, but yeah, that's a good set of the Markets Authority. Yeah, but I, we love niche, don't we? Yeah, I know you're a big fan of Pod Save America. Yeah. In fact, one of our first dates, because I do think of them as dates. Yes. I mean, there weren't many of them. No. Uh, due to the aforementioned declining. <laughs> but um, we, we went to see Pod Save America live and they had a guest drop out, I think. So they invited Nish Kumar to do it at the last moment. And that has led all these years later to no, him. But he, Nish wasn't there. Yeah, he was. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he was. No, he wasn't. He was on um, Love It or Leave It. Yeah. I bow to your elephantine memory. And Nish is brilliant. He's he is brilliant. very funny. And his co-host is Coco Khan, who is a journalist, writes or has written a lot for The Guardian, interviewed us and I think was kind about us. So big fan of her as well. Do you think we should try and do a sort of crossover? Mm-hmm. And David Ronsterman is back. Is he? Past, present, future. Ah. New podcast. He's back in the game. Uh-huh. You'll be able to listen to him while you shower. Yeah. <laughs> Showers haven't been the same for you. They haven't. Uh, but you've been calling him and putting him on speakerphone. I have, yeah. Um, He's actually should respect this, his boundaries. I think we should ex- extend this. I think we should end this conversation very soon. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So I'm delighted to say that we're joined in Jeff's loft by Daniel Chandler, who is the author of Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. No stranger to seeing Ed in his swimming trunks, I 
I wasn't I'm drifting over there up. straight away. Yeah, I've only seen photos. I've never seen it in the flesh. Is it as, as magnificent as the photos might <laughs> I suggest? really think this is just absolutely sort of, this is just wrong in so many levels. Do we need to explain uh, the context? Uh, yes. It's a, we we <laughs> both swim at the... God, Hampstead, somebody thought about Hampstead, the context. said pond. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Not as bad as it sounds. It's not as bad as it sounds. So, look, first thing to ask is... There was a three-way bidding war between publishers for this book. Is that right? <laughs> that is right. It's yes. a frenzy. It's a feeding frenzy. Yeah. Who would have frenzy. thought a book inspired by John Rawls? I know. Well, that's um, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But, but would you have thought, I guess it's a question. No, I didn't. I mean, I well, I also hadn't written a book before, so this was all completely new to me. And to be honest, my feeling was that I would have paid someone to let me write the book and was amazed at the reception. But I think, you know, what the book is trying to do is set out a kind of hopeful vision of what a better, fairer society would look like. And I guess it turned out that there was some appetite for that. And just say a little bit to our listeners about what took you to write this book? Because you'd worked in government as a policy advisor in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. You'd been a researcher at the Resolution Foundation. You'd worked at the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Uh, and previously, you'd got a degree in economics, philosophy and history, I think I'm right in You're saying. You're across as a bit stalky. <laughs> no, everything about no, my research is oh, good. Right. <laughs> um, what led you to do this book? As you say, it's your first yeah. book. Yeah, well, so I guess I started thinking about the book around 2018, 19. It was sort of post-Trump or mid-Trump Brexit times. And I guess I was reading a lot about the crisis of liberal democracy and was very struck, I guess, by how all of those books were almost exclusively diagnostic. They're books about how and why we've got into the terrible situation that we were in. Yes. And, and then there's a last chapter, which yeah, exactly. has, you know, some recommendations. Exactly. And I was reading a book recently by Yasha Monk, who gives a, a name to this. He calls it the Chapter 10 Problem, <laughs> uh, which yes. I thought was very clever. And it's exactly, you have these books and they're yeah. you know, very brilliant analyses of problems, but solutions get packed into the final chapter and just don't, feel like they match up to the scale of the challenges that we face and seem unlikely to inspire anyone to take any kind of action to bring change about. So I guess I was sort of looking around and feeling like it's all too easy to point to problems, but much harder to find a coherent vision of what a better, fairer society would actually look like. And I felt like Rawls had the answers in a sense. So John Rawls is this philosopher, the kind of towering figure of political philosophy of the 20th century, completely revolutionised the discipline. And, you know, is sort of routinely compared to thinkers like or Plato, Hobbes, Kant, John Stuart Mill, you know, the sort of greatest thinkers in the history of and Western totally thought. And totally absent from any political and then, debate. Yeah, exactly. Absent from our political so that, debate. Why, why, is that, like, why don't I know the name? I think it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think it's you're lots well of people... You're a well guy, is what you're no, saying. No, no, no. I mean... Uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, lots of my friends who are really interested in politics also haven't heard of Rawls. Or if they have, I think, have a sort of wrong impression of his But then his you look ideas. at he is genuinely, you know, one of, if not the most revered political philosopher of the 20th century. Yeah. But that somehow doesn't filter through. Is it because he published The Theory of Justice in 1971? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it just sort of as the Reagan-Thatcher revolution was getting underway. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a few things going on. I mean, partly I think it's his personality. So he was this incredibly shy and modest character, quite unlike the sort of other big-name philosophers of his time. Never wanted to be a public intellectual, had a quite severe stutter that he developed after his two younger brothers died when he was a child. So just personality-wise, he didn't. He never sought to put himself in the public limelight, despite I think many invitations. Then I think the politics of the times is another big part of it. You know, he's 
developing this inclusive, humane, egalitarian version of liberalism, just as politics is moving in completely the opposite direction. And I think, you know, part of what's exciting now is that it's really the first moment since Rawls wrote that book that I think there is really an opening in our political discourse for big ideas of a sort that a thinker like Rawls can provide. But I think the other part of the explanation is that Rawls, you know, he's sort of stuck in his own writing to quite philosophical questions. You know, he's asking the biggest questions about the nature of justice and fairness and developing a set of principles that I think are incredibly helpful for thinking about what that would mean. But he didn't say much about how we could put those principles into practice. That's my sort of, I'm try, hoping to pick you're up where bri- Rawls you're, you know, you're leaves the, you're off. You're the bridge and, the conduit. Just before we get on to some of the ideas in the book, mm. the, just could you, for our listeners set out Rawls's principles of justice and why you think they're so important. Yeah. So I think maybe even I'll just go one step back. So the sort of core idea at the heart of his philosophy is a kind of simple one. It's that society should be fair. And obviously he recognises that lots of people have different ideas about what exactly fairness means. And so he put forward a thought experiment that he calls the original position for for sort of working that out. And that's the idea that if we want to know what a fair society would look like, we should imagine how we would choose to organise it if we didn't know which person we would be in that society. So whether we would be rich or poor, gay or straight, black or white. And so that's the sort of first big piece of his philosophy that I think is just such an incredibly powerful, intuitive way of thinking it's one of those things once you've sort of got it in your head it's hard to forget and it's a bit like how you might expect someone to cut a cake more fairly if they didn't know which piece they were getting it sort of builds on I think that very familiar intuition about what fairness is and then I think where where his theory gets practical is that he uses that thought experiment to justify two fundamental principles of justice one to do with freedom and one to do with equality hence the title of my book free and equal but also actually alongside those two principles there's a third principle of sustainability which I think has been somewhat overlooked and which I've also tried to to bring back through my book So just to quickly run through those principles, the first principle is known as the basic liberties principle. It's the idea that basically the first priority of the state is to protect a set of fundamental personal and political freedoms, basically the freedoms we need to live freely according to our own beliefs, freedom of speech, religion, sexuality, that kind of thing. And then the political freedoms that we need to play a part as genuine equals in the democratic process. So first principle is basically a principle justifying liberal democracy. Then he has a second equality principle that actually has two parts. First is equality of opportunity, that everyone should have a fair chance to develop their uh, talents and abilities in life. And then the sort of most innovative and radical part of his theory is what's known as the difference principle, which is the idea that we should organise our economic system in such a way that the least well-off are better off than they would be under any alternative system. And what you get from that is a sense that a degree of inequality can be justified in society because it can give people incentives to work and to study, to innovate, and that can lead to prosperity that can benefit everyone. But those inequalities are only justified if that prosperity actually benefits everyone. And that's obviously not something you can so just So that's like leave, a test but... if it's good inequality or bad inequality. Though. Yeah, exactly. It's whether it actually finds its way, particularly to the least well-off, and not just like a little bit trickling down to those at the bottom. It's sort of a reversal of the idea of trickle down. It puts the priority at you know with those at the bottom of society because I guess sitting behind the philosophy is this idea that we want everyone to be able to feel like society is working for them. And, the you know... 
it's the least well-off, I guess, who have the most reason to feel dissatisfied with society. And so if, if even the least well-off can feel like society is working for them, then surely everyone else can feel so too. That's a brilliant explanation. So, the, so what our audience should have in their, their head, correct me if when I go wrong here, mm-hmm. is equal basic liberties for all, yeah. fair equality of opportunity, and this difference principle yeah. that says inequalities can only be justified if they help the least advantage. Exactly. Yeah, and actually maybe I've done exactly the thing that people often do and left out his sustainability principle. So he has a principle, he calls it the just savings principle. And when Rawls was writing, he wasn't thinking that much about the environment. He was thinking about sort of savings of physical wealth from one generation to the next. How much should one generation save in order to, so that the next generation could potentially be richer? But the same principle applies very much to questions about the environment. And the basic insight of it is that, you know, if we didn't know which generation we would be born into, we would want to make sure that uh, each generation would maintain at least the the sort of vital natural ecosystems that society depends on. And in a sense, that's the bit of his theory that we're failing most spectacularly to live up to today. And reading your book, I mean, I was saying to Jeff before you arrived that it's a, it's a sort of game of two halves because the first half is a incredibly cogent and, and sort of comprehensible explanation of rules and, and his critics. And the second half is the practicalities. Mm. Reading the first half of your book, it sort of took me back to my studying of political philosophy. And maybe mm-hmm. I would have, if I hadn't, you know, been going with the wrong crowd, maybe I would have carried on <laughs> uh, doing political philosophy. I mean, there is a sort of brilliant purity to it, isn't there? Mm-hmm. But explain to our audience why you think it's helpful before we get on to the proposals, to sort of start with something which is quite abstract. Why is that helpful? I think it's helpful because what we get from this quite abstract thinking is a set of principles, a set of values. And I think values really matter in politics that, you know, most people don't go and study the details of policies. They're not working in think tanks. I think what people respond to is a narrative, a story about where a country is and where it needs to be going. And usually that narrative, if it's compelling, is underpinned by some kind of moral core, a sense of fairness or justice and and kind of values that can motivate people to get involved in politics. Obviously, that's not the only thing that motivates people to get involved, but I think it would be strange to think that those ideas don't play a role in politics and that if we look back in history, the moments when political parties and movements have really been able to bring about significant and lasting change is when they've been guided by a vision that they can, you know, articulate to to the people at large. I think that's, you know, what we saw with the post-war Labour government. I think it was also true for Thatcher and Reagan and the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s. And, you know, they had reference points for that politics in thinkers like Friedman and Hayek. How would Rawls thinking as a foundation, how, how would that change the sort of basic tenets of what we think of as progressive politics? I think part of what's exciting about Rawls is that, in a sense, although I don't think he quite puts it like this, it's a synthesis of the best of the liberal and the socialist tradition. It's, you know, if I, th- I suppose if people associate liberalism generally with prioritising freedom above all else and socialism with prioritising equality above everything else and that, you know, socialists are sometimes willing to sacrifice freedom in the name of equality and liberals willing to sacrifice equality for freedom. And Rawls shows us how you can sort of bring those two things together into a coherent So they're in less, less of conflict with each other. Yeah, that they're sort of part of a mutually supportive whole. And But I suppose what's cool about Rawls is that that's not just 
is not just saying, well, of course, we need both. He gives us these principles that really spell out, you know, which freedoms really matter, how much equality do we need in society, what equalities matter. He allows us to overcome a kind of false binary choice between freedom and equality and shows us in quite a practical way how those fit together. And so I think following those principles through to their practical conclusions, I guess, gives us a whole load of of practical ideas for how we could change democracy in our economy. And in a sense, you know, that's where my all the philosophical stuff in the book is leading up towards that. And we should talk about that. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is, as you think about rules is the chasm between his principles of justice and the way our society works. And I think there's something very interesting here, which is there's this, there's been this debate uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, which would be a very simplistic debate on the left about, do you believe in equality of opportunity or do you believe in equality of outcome? Now, Rawls is saying he does believe in equality of opportunity and he worries about large inequalities of outcome is the way I would put it. But, you know, the truth is that equality of opportunity is an incredibly radical concept. You know, it's seen as the more sort of, if you like, compromising concept. Rishi Sunak would say he believes in equality of opportunity, but we're miles away. No, I I think what's interesting is, you know, some of Rawls's principles, like the basic liberties principle and equality of opportunity, sound kind of familiar at first. And you'd think, oh, maybe we've kind of already done that. You know, just as a phrase, I mean, nobody's going to say, I don't believe in equality of opportunity. It feels like empty words until you... Yeah. digging into what he, he specifically yeah. means. But in a way, that's part of the political power, I think, of that idea is that it has this enormous sort of support across the political spectrum. And the hope is that by pointing out just how far away we are from it, that gives you some leverage in order to, to bring about change. And I think, you know, the same is actually true of his first principle. So the, the political part of his basic liberties is not just about having sort of formal freedoms like freedom of political speech or the right to vote. It's about having genuinely equal chances to take part in and influence the political process. And again, there are lots of studies that show that that is just not the case at the moment. I mean, the best ones exist in America where a pair of academics, they looked at a whole load of policy proposals that were put forward to Congress over a long period of time and looked at which ones were adopted and which ones weren't adopted. And what they found is that basically whenever the rich differ in terms of what they want from everybody else, they basically win the debate. And it's a very sort of direct measure of how we don't have equal influence or equal opportunities for influence in our And there's a famous system. American court case called Citizens United about the ability of wealthy interests to fund political campaigns. Yeah, exactly. So the American Supreme Court has basically blocked various attempts by Congress to limit the role of money in politics. But, you know, we have a similar problem here. There's a great idea on that in the book. Yeah, it's a problem here too. So in the 2019 election, I think just over 100 super donors were responsible for nearly 50% of donations to to UK political parties, each of them giving on average about £450,000 each. And to come to the solution, which again is the sort of book is very solutions focused, I think what we should do is first limit those donations to a very low level, say the low hundreds of pounds at most, and then replace them with a democracy voucher system where every citizen would be given an equal amount of money, say 50 pounds per year or per election cycle that they could give to the party of their choice. 
And, you know, that would completely transform the incentives of our political system in a stroke. It would mean that parties have, you know, would have to go and appeal to everyone, everyone equally, rather than going cap in hand to a rich and unrepresentative donor class. And, you know, we also know that it can work in practice because having been a sort of pipe dream of philosophers for a while, this scheme now exists in Seattle. So in 2017, residents of Seattle, they approved a scheme like this in a referendum. There have been three election cycles run under the scheme and it's worked very well and it had exactly the results that you would expect. You know, more people getting involved in politics, particularly people from previously underrepresented groups and also more competitive elections, more people standing for office and incumbents being beaten more regularly. And all of that is just it's sort of good for the health of democracy and just so obviously a massive step towards political equality. Do you think the Jeffocracy, how do you think the Jeffocracy? It's a great idea. I do you think I, it might be the thing that led to lift off for the Jeffocracy? I mean, p- possibly. <laughs> I'd try and find a way of funneling the vouchers towards the continuation of the Jeffocracy. Well, no, but the, much I, a one-party no, but the starting of it is what I mean. Oh, you don't really want to do political competition, do you? Not really. No, right, okay, fine. Yeah, I'd be, I would have become accustomed to a certain yeah, okay, lifestyle. Fine. Okay, fine. Um, but I, th- I think it's great for, for engagement as well. And yeah. what is the engagement level like? Because I know sometimes uh, if I get somebody a voucher for Christmas or their birthday, they don't always use it. Yeah, so actually I think that the number of people... <laughs> no, no, that, 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 yeah, I understand you're a busy guy. There's history here. What's the voucher I didn't use? That, that very nice voucher I got you and your family to take a, a boat on the, uh, on the Regent's Canal. It does sound like a nice. It was lovely. It was lovely. I would, if you had given it to me, well, I can, I can ne- tell ne- you. Ne- next time, <laughs> next time. Yeah. Yeah. Should we move Actually, on? That, I think what would be good in this system is that you know some people would use their vouchers and others wouldn't, and mm. then you could redistribute the vouchers that weren't spent just in proportion to the ones that were already spent. So if if the if twenty percent of people use their vouchers and you know half gave to each of the major parties, you could redistribute the rest along the same lines. You know, imagine it would take time for people to get involved in this way and it would, you know, parties would adjust. So I think it would create an opportunity for for more political engagement, you know, outside of voting and in a more communal and yes. community oriented yeah, yeah. way. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
talk to us about the sort of principles of equality of opportunity and fair equality of outcome. Where does that lead you to? In practical terms, yeah. So I think on equality of opportunity, you know, I guess the school system is the, or the education system is our kind of the most direct lever that we have for shaping that. And I think there are lots of things that I would do there. The first would be to really focus on the early years. I think that's the sort of area where you can make the biggest difference. I think, you know, the recent expansion of childcare support to the early years in the budget, that's a big move in the right direction. It still leaves out children where the parents aren't working, which I think is a big problem because it's often those children who would benefit the most. And I think if equality of opportunity is our priority, then they should really be included in this kind of scheme. So I think I would start with the early years. I think within the school system, again, targeting more funding towards disadvantaged students is another the obvious thing that we would do. And in a sense that we do do that to some extent, but the level of funding has been going down rather than up, even though the gaps between children from rich and poor backgrounds remain very large. I think the other thing, though, and the the sort of elephant in the room when it comes to equality of opportunity in the school system is the role of private schools. At the moment, about 7% of children go to private school in the UK. But that group go on to earn, on average, about 40% more than their state-educated peers and then dominate the upper echelons of almost every elite profession. So they account for something like two-thirds of senior judges. I think it's nearly half of politicians and newspaper columnists with all the enormous political and cultural (laughs) influence that they have, about a third of business leaders. And... You know, I think if we're really serious about equality of opportunity, we should be looking at that again. But I suppose the, the sort of go-to proposal is to uh, remove their charitable status. And that's, I think, Labour Party policy at the moment. In the book, I actually argue that we should go further and abolish private schools entirely. You know, and I think people might be surprised to hear a liberal or someone who sort of identifies as a liberal philosophically making an argument for that kind of idea. I think a lot of people maybe instinctively recoil at the idea of banning private schools as if it's a sort of first step on the road to some sort of authoritarian socialist nightmare. And a part of what I'm trying to do is to... I guess, show that there are really impeccably liberal credentials for doing that. Also to emphasise that it's not an attack on parents who decide to send their children to private schools. I think that's totally understandable in the situation that we're in right now. And there's nothing wrong with parents wanting the best for their children. The problem is with the system and that's where the solution lies too. And that liberalism, I think some of our listeners might be surprise from a different perspective. It it doesn't extend to, for example, abolishing tuition fees. So yeah, in the book, I argue the way that we should fund higher education is through a mix of tuition fees and then a degree of public subsidy. And that's, it was a sort of, it was actually the, I think the topic in the book that maybe one of the ones I struggled most with and actually where I changed my mind the most in the process of writing the book, I think. So where were you? So I started out thinking that university education should be free at the point of use and ended up basically thinking that we should keep some version of a, of a student loan based. Because of its economic benefit across people's lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that basically graduates benefit the most from the education that they have in university and that it's fair that they should contribute towards those costs. And particularly, you know, thinking seriously about Rawls's difference principle, the idea that we should prioritise the interests of the least well off. I think that suggests that our priority should be more towards the more than 50% of the population who aren't at university rather than 
those who are at university. And, you know, I think the worry with a student loan based system is that it will put people off from low income backgrounds from going to university. And I think if that was the case, it would be a very decisive argument against a student loan based system. But actually, when you look at the evidence, and this in a sense was the bit that surprised me, since the UK introduced tuition fees, there's been no decline in the rate of applications from people from lower income backgrounds, the gap in enrollment between people from lower income and higher income backgrounds has stayed more or less the same. It's obviously still much That's too still wide. Still a big it's gulf, big, though, isn't it? It's still a massive gulf, but putting tuition fees in place hasn't made it worse. And so it's not clear that removing them would necessarily make it better. Doesn't it tie higher education even more closely with economic benefit rather than the other forms of enrichment or in, indirect benefit it gives to a society, though? I think that's why there should be a mix between public funding and then students contributing towards the cost of their education. I think the public aspect would reflect all of those wider cultural, political, social benefits too. Talk to us about an idea that we covered on our very first podcast mm-hmm. when um, when Jeff was in his 40s, uh, <laughs> and I was too, um, which is the universal basic income. Yes. Um, where do you come out on that? Yeah, I am in favour of a universal basic income. You know, I think right now in the middle of a cost of living crisis, it wouldn't be my priority. I think the top priority is just to make sure that people can put food on their table and heat their homes. But I think in the long run, we should move towards a universal basic income or something similar. And, you know, I think the reason we should do that is that a universal basic income would give those with the least resources in society a sense of independence and dignity that just isn't available to them under our existing system that creates a lot of stigma and stress and mental health problems through all a, you know this sort of harsh and punitive system of conditions and sanctions so you know i think a universal basic income it's not the cheapest way to eliminate poverty and the the argument for it comes from recognizing that just making sure that people have enough money isn't the only thing that matters that dignity and self-respect matter a lot too and i sort of a, a quote that i sometimes go back to is from a a philosopher called Philippe Van Parijs, who's a big universal basic income advocate. And he he sort of makes the contrast between our existing welfare system and a basic income as, as follows. He says that what we have at the moment is a safety net through which many people fall that should be caught and in which lots of others get trapped. And whereas the universal basic income provides us with a floor that everybody can stand on and from which they can go out and, you know, pursue their lives with us with the sense of independence that you would want everybody to have in a in a decent society. So, yes, that's my that's my case for universal basic income. And talk to us about the ideas for a shift in the relationship between workers and employers. In a way, that's the bit of the of the book and of Rawls's ideas that I'm kind of most excited about because I think uh, questions about access to meaningful work and the balance of power between workers and owners feels like something that's been really missing from our political. And just to be clear with our listeners, that's embedded. I think you said this earlier. That's embedded in his difference principle. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, to, to sort of link yeah. this back to Rawls's framework, the difference principle, as we said, is this idea that we should aim to sort of maximize the life chances of the least well off. But when thinking about life chances for rules that's not just about income it's a sort of mix of income uh, opportunities for power and control and then and self-respect 
we can just look to you know our nearest neighbours in Europe, where lots of countries operate a completely different system. And Germany is the country, I guess, that's gone the furthest in that respect. And they have a system known as co-management or co-determination, where workers and owners share decision-making rights on a much more equal basis. So in companies with more than 500 workers, the employees are able to elect a third of the members of the company board. For bigger companies with more than 2,000 workers, they get half of the seats on the board. And then alongside having seats on the board, there are works councils, which are kind of workplace bodies where workers elect representatives. And those councils have real decision-making power over various aspects of people's working conditions. I sort of argue in the book that we should try to, you know, I think in the UK, we've had discussions about maybe having one person on the board or two people on the board. And I think we should go much further. You know, if we look at the German system, it seems to have worked incredibly well. Those workplaces are better for workers and the firms perform just as well. There's no evidence of a sort of decline in investment or profitability or all the things that economists rightly worried about just haven't transpired in practice. And I think, you know, if we're really thinking big, we should aim to adopt a kind of maximal version of that model. So we could give workers half of the seats on boards in nearly all companies and have works count councils across the board. I think there's a lot of wishful thinking that if we just say work should be more meaningful, that companies will magically cotton on and make work better. And I think that's just naive. And if we want work to get better, then we should empower workers to shape their workplaces in whatever way would make it better for them. Can I just ask on on Rawls, Mm -hmm. did, did his ideas in his lifetime travel to different societies. When you're talking about the structure Mm. of companies in Germany, Mm -hmm. did those ideas underpin any of that? I don't think so. No, I think in Germany, that system originated actually well before rules. I think it first emerged just after the First World War and was sort of strengthened in the post-war period. And actually, that aspect of Rawls's theory is not one that he developed in a lot of detail. So he's clear, I think, that the principle applies to questions about power and control and dignity and self-respect. But, you know, as I was saying before, one of the reasons Rawls hasn't had much influence is that he never really spelled out the practical implications. You don't get many concrete proposals. So the proposal for... He was a bit for, chapter 10-ish. Exactly. He? he was a bit... It's Unfortunately, I have to admit that even Rawls was a bit chapter 10-ish when it came to practical ideas. You see, see I'm seeing him as the Elton John and you, you as the Bernie Taupin. (laughs) He made the music and then you've put the words to it. Yeah, could be. Although it's Elton John who really gets the music out to the people. Yeah, that's true. I I like to think of myself more as Elton John, but then I would. (laughs) Maybe maybe that can go on the paperback as a sort of blurb. Yeah, but say that Ed said it because Uh, uh, my my, my opinion carries no value. No, I feel weight. (laughs) Sometimes with ideas and optimism, it it Mm. can feel like a bomb when you feel like you're going to hell in a handcart and then that's certain inspirations certainly useful but do, do you see this as more than that is it a template yeah i mean the the intention for the book ultimately is a political one you know i want to i hope that these ideas can help provide some coherence and inspiration for progressive politics more broadly it's you know it's not aimed specifically at any particular political party and in a sense part of what is appealing about the ideas as well as how i think they have an ability to cut across some both cultural and also conventional political dividing lines what's an idea that might appeal to people on the right do you think i think the emphasis on free speech and the importance of going back to i guess liberal basics of of a society where we 
respect, you know, trying to live together with other people who we disagree with. I yeah. think that would appeal to yeah. the more reasonable parts of the right and not the ones who are trying to ferment culture wars. I think keeping tuition fees is another sort of bit of the of the puzzle that doesn't neatly fit into it's not an obviously left-wing proposal also where you are on paternity leave as well yeah so yeah well yeah i'm sort of have a mixed position there so that the question that comes up i think what i'm in favor of is that parental leave should be offered on a, at least a gender neutral basis so i think we should move away from a system where fathers get a much shorter amount of leave than than mothers and i think at the very least we should allow families to split that leave as they see fit where i'm sort of in two minds i guess is whether we should go further and have a use it or lose it system which has become more common in europe where there's an amount of leave that if fathers don't use then then they lose it and you know i think that possibly goes too far in you know well, the case for doing it is that in countries that have just allowed families to choose basically women have ended up continuing to take because you're going to affect the, the cultural change as well yeah so i'm sort of i'm i'm kind of in two minds about that i think on the one hand it's good to leave uh, allow families to make these decisions but i think we also have to recognize that those decisions are shaped by a culture that in turn is the product of a system where or where the laws and institutions massive basically forced women to do all of and that power work. and where power dynamics in the exactly. workplace and so on. So yeah, so that's when I think when I'm kind of I don't have a strong I'm sort of somewhere in the middle, <laughs> unhelpfully. Um, but yeah, so I but I, I suppose I hope that the ideas could can have some political impact, particularly that they can help to, to sort of build bridges between the sort of left and liberal parts of the progressive family, you know, and just give that sense of, of vision and direction that I think is is missing at the moment. And let me ask this question finally, Daniel, as we come to the end. Um, what gives you hope? I think two things. I guess I think Rawls's philosophy gives me hope. I find the experience of reading Rawls, what comes through most strongly is a really deep faith in the capacity and willingness of humans to treat one another fairly and to try to change their societies for the better. Um, so I think Rawls's philosophy gives me hope. And then in the process of writing these, this book, I've you know gone around and tried to bring together all of the best practical ideas from academia and from you know real world places that are doing stuff differently, like Seattle that we discussed before. And I think that gives me a lot of hope because I think the idea that you know, big reforms are just infeasible or not possible. It's just not true. We can look around the world and there are lots and lots of good examples of things being done really differently. And so, you know, I think, yeah, that gives me hope, knowing that that real change is possible uh, and that we can see it around the world. He's a Rolls fanboy. <laughs> Got any Rolls tattoos? Yeah. No, no, but I do have a, uh, a picture of Rolls on my wall next to my desk, a little oh. portrait. So so I shouldn't have said that. No one else knows. That's It's usually that's in my private little study. No, that's very good that, that, to give you inspiration. Next to your picture of Ed. Yeah. What? <laughs> in his swimming uh, trunks. Uh, the book is by Daniel Chandler, Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? It's a thoroughly interesting read, and I think it particularly being able to step outside the sort of day-to-day debates and think, okay, well, let's just return to some basic principles here. What what does a first society look like? It's such a valuable thing to do. So, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, ho-ho, we're in the outro, ho-ho. 
wearing your glasses today? I was amazed you didn't comment before when I arrived. They look good on you. Are they really? new glasses? No, they're oldish. Do you ever take them off and then gesticulate with them to emphasise a point? No, because I don't really wear them very often. I think it would suit you. Really? Yeah, when you do Maybe look more studious. I look, I'm a bit shallow. I look a bit shallow, don't I? I need to become more studious. I don't like seeing my face without glasses on it. I don't know myself. I sort of find it a sort of obstruction. And I like thinking, let's look through the round window. That's good. <laughs> um... So how's the podcast, the other podcast? Oh, the, the Succession podcast. Yeah. Um, we had Stewie on last week. Do you know who he is? Yes. Kendall's best friend? Yes. My wife really objectified him. It was quite uncomfortable to listen to. Stewie, I think, actually. Don't the Americans say Stewie? Maybe, but I'm uh, very much not American. Um, you got to catch up. Yeah. You don't want to see people shouting at each other, do you? Not really. I've seen enough of that. <laughs> the House of Commons. <laughs> Uh, well, wasn't Daniel fantastic? He was fantastic. He we love Daniel, definitely. The book is called Free and Equal. What would a fair society look like? Dare to be Daniel. Tony Benn. Was that instrumental in you calling your son Daniel? Not really. Mm. <laughs> Just we like the name. Just a little theory I had. We like the name. It's a good name. Yeah. yeah. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Con... I've uh, done it again. Rachel Content Rachel is our content. Obama producer. Yeah. She, I mean, she, to me, she is Rachel Content. Yeah. That's how Rachel hot Con- she is on Rachel the content. Rachel Content. She's synonymous with content. Rachel Content. Uh, Rachel is a. Uh, it's con- like the Larry Speaks thing. Have I said this to you before? The Ronald Reagan's press secretary is called Larry Speaks. Is that right? Yes. Do you see Harry Belafonte died this yes, week? Yes, I did. And his spokesman, yeah. who was quoted in the news, was called Ken Sunshine. Oh, that's great. Is that the most appropriate Maybe spokesman you for Harry Belafonte? Ch- change your name to Jeff Sunshine. Bring me Sunshine. Yeah. Um, uh, Rachel is supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish Gail Lofthouse is our announcer Ed C composed the music James Deacon made our idents and our artwork was designed Henry by Henry Cole he's been Ed Miliband he's been Jeff Lloyd at 50 and these have been Reasons to be Cheerful Small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat, rounded, textured or tall Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.